0: This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. He was a person with a purpose, and his purpose was to get the United States of America to live up to its promise to treat people equally, to find equal justice under the law, things that we're still fighting for today
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard.
0: And I'm Knut Berger.
1: And today we're talking about singer, athlete and activist Paul Robeson, whose musical and theatrical career spanned the globe, but whose political activism had a strong impact on the U.S., including the Pacific Northwest. If you haven't already seen the video, we suggest you stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page on Crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit.
0: At a time when people fear voices being silenced, there's one man whose experience is a reminder of the damage that can be done when government suppresses the free speech of those who speak, and in this case, sing, their beliefs. One man regained his voice at the foot of the International Peace Arch in Blaine, Washington, while under heavy sanctions from the U.S. government. But Paul Robeson was defiant and would not be silenced.
1: I'd like to start with the origin story again here because it sounds like sometimes you stumble across these ideas for video topics through just like one little detail or something, but what Sort of drove you to pick Paul Robeson for for this one.
0: I was talking to a man who's uh, works as a historian for the Washington State Parks, mm. and I was just making a call to find out about story ideas, like was, you know any park history that's worth knowing about. And he said, "Well, you know, one of the things we're doing this is the what would it be the 70th anniversary of the Paul Robeson." concerts at the Peace Arch in Blaine. Mm. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he said that the Parks Department was working on some historic panels that they were going to mount on the Washington side of the Peace Arch that talked about this series of concerts. Well, Paul Robeson was a name that I remembered from when I was young, because my mother met Paul Robeson during World War II. And in 1943, Paul Mm -hmm. Robeson came to give a concert in Seattle, and he got a terrible case apparently of laryngitis. And he was actually hospitalized at Tacoma General Hospital. And my mother was a a civilian nurse there. My father was stationed at what uh, used to be called McCord Air Force Base Mm -hmm. and the Army Air Force. My mother was a nurse and worked in local hospitals. And she was one of Paul Robeson's nurses. Wow! And you know, and I mean, in the 1940s, Paul Robeson was an international celebrity. Hmm. He was, you know, a, a remarkable person, mm-hmm. famous for his voice, his baritone voice. He'd had musicals written with him in mind. Old Man River was a song that was written with the the composer imagining Paul singing it. And he was also a a very active social justice advocate. He was African-American. He was an advocate for equal rights. Things that, you know, in the civil rights movement in the 1960s were terms and phrases that were used he was using them you know way before that and mm-hmm. he was just a remarkable person he was uh, you know a college athlete for Rutgers he played professional football he went on stage and famously played Othello you know he had this gorgeous voice he was in famous musicals movies he had uh, you know a singing career he traveled all over the world giving concerts and of course during the war he was giving concerts to boost, domestic morale morale of the American people he was performing all over and that was what had brought him to the Puget Sound area I asked my mother I said well what did you think of him Uh and she said oh he was a handsome man (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah she was quite smitten I always uh, just the way she said it, you know it was like, Wow, Paul Robson, you know <laughs> he was sort of the end, but he was really charismatic, mm. really popular, and you know his politics were pretty far left, you mm-hmm. know he was he was a socialist, he was you know arguing for for civil- civil rights in the nineteen thirties and forties was pretty radical, mm-hmm. especially for a famous person to really take that on but during during the war the sort of left leaningness of it was a little bit in tune with of course the roosevelt administration but also we were allied with the soviet union mm-hmm. so there you know while people had been skeptical about communists and whatnot you know that sort of quieted down and you know while we were fighting hitler <laughs> right yeah 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 anyway that that you know, it was the only time I had ever heard about Paul Robeson being in the Northwest. I'd never heard about him giving concerts at the Peace Arch of all places.
1: Even just reading a you know, little short biography of him, he strikes me as such this uh, Renaissance man. I mean, he's just like so talented and so kind of prolific in every way. I mean, you could probably spend an hour, to, you know, this this whole episode just talking about his musical career, but he also... Yeah, apparently has, you know, he had a a law degree as well, right? And he, yeah, he played in the NFL and just uh, like lots of things. And then did a lot of um, activism. It sounds like he was focused on racial equality and civil rights, but also workers' rights. It sounds like he had a lot of involvement with conversations around union movement. Because the Peace Arch concerts, it sounds like, I believe the story was like, it started because he was, invited to sing in Vancouver, Canada?
0: That's right. So there was a Canadian union, the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. Yeah. And they were having a big annual conference in Vancouver. (laughs) And they invited Paul Robeson to come up to Canada and sing. The atmosphere about somebody like Paul Robeson in post-World War II period, once the Soviets had switched from being our allies to our Cold War enemies, mm-hmm. you know, Robeson traveled all over the world. He sang in China. He sang in Russia. He went to everywhere mm-hmm. and made quite a good living from that in addition to his, you know, film and stage recording work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is the period of the kind of rise of resurgence of anti-communism mm-hmm. in In the war. And many of the causes and many of the people that he associated with were, you know, accused of being communists. They certainly were far left people, labor organizers, social justice and race, civil rights people. And so he fell under sort of suspicion. And because he had this international audience, it was perceived that his left wing ideas made him a security threat the government decided to take away his passport and his ability to travel abroad. His international performances were popular. He sang all over the world. But with the travel ban, Robeson's income from performing dropped from $150,000 per year in 1949 to a mere 3,000. Right-wing agitators attended some of his speaking events and attacked attendees. This created the impression that it was Robeson's ideas that were unsafe. They considered him a danger. Well, this impacted him mightily in taking away a big chunk of his income. But more importantly, he was a person with a purpose. And his purpose was to get the United States of America to live up to its promise, Mm. to treat people equally, to find equal justice under the law, things that we're still fighting for today but a lot of this was considered by a lot of Americans as commie talk. This is this guy is um, you know a traitor. This guy is working for the Reds. You know, these kinds of things. So he came under a lot of criticism, increasingly in in the political arena and um, government arena. So he was invited to speak. He came up to Seattle and then and then uh, went up to Blaine and the canadians wouldn't let him across the border and he's like well wait <laughs> you know i don't need a passport to go to canada anybody can go to canada you know mm-hmm. and the canadians said uh, no we're not we're not letting you in we're respecting the american ban on your travel wow. and of course they yeah they didn't want him stirring up the union up there and and spreading his message so he went back to Seattle and he tried a short while later to book a, a talk. And, you know, his, his talks often involve singing and speaking and, um, you know, singing favorites. He would modify American folk songs to include some of his ideological verses, you know. I mean, some, some songs like Old Man River or whatnot could be perceived as not... You know, particularly racially enlightened, but he would change the lyrics to make them, you mm. know, in his mind better. But he would he would um, you know talk and sing, and even with his politics being pretty far left, he was still very popular as a singer and performer. But he tried to do a talk at the Civic Auditorium in Seattle, which, you know, was out by Seattle Center. Used to it used to be. It's where, where the opera house is now. Mm-hmm. And the city banned him and said, we have a, a rule that anything that might incite the public can't happen in a public venue. And specifically,
1: you mentioned, I, I believe, events that might incite racial or religious antagonisms. Is yes. The idea?
0: Right. You know, it's interesting. I mean, Seattle has long been a town with a lot of Left-wing activism, the Wobblies, or you know, industrial workers of the world, socialists, communists—yes, I mean—but it's also had, um, you know, a strong reactionary <laughs> force as well. Um, people resisting those things, but uh, there's also some an incident, for example, during World War or before World War II in the 1930s, where. A pro-Nazi group gave a talk, not at a public venue, but at a private club, the German club mm. on First Hill, and they were Heiling and waving mm. swastikas around and that kind of thing. And the members of the city council heard about it. Some of them got very upset and basically said, you know, if, if you want a liquor license or if you want to you know, be able to – a permit to hold events, you can't hold these kind of events. Mm-hmm. So it happened on, on the other side of the spectrum as well. People didn't want fascists talking and they didn't want public facilities used by communists. Well, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Robeson, who is a you know, world-famous entertainer, politics was part of his thing. And, and this was kind of a shock, I think. You know, because Seattle did have a reputation as being pretty um, open-minded or at least tolerant of lefty stuff, mm-hmm. strong union movement and whatnot. Right, yeah. So it, it was pretty shocking. So they decided, well, why don't we go up to the Peace Arch, which is after all what I want is international peace. Yeah. You know, he did not want war. He was uh, um, against against it. And uh, he wanted, um, you know, he was an internationalist. He wanted all countries to get along. So he and Harry Bridges, who was also had had his passport taken away and who was the head of the Longshore Union and a noted leftist, they went up together to Blaine and they got turned away again. So the decision was made, well, why don't we just hold our event at the Peace Arch right at the border? And we can't get into Canada, but we can get darn close. So we can get a f- literally footsteps away. Mm-hmm. You know, he would um, speak from the back of a flatbed truck and do a concert and, you know, make his appeal for a better America. So that's what he did. And about 20,000 people showed up. It was a huge success many of those people were on the canadian side it shut the border down it created a massive traffic jam wow he gave an incredible concert incredible speech there's a recording of it and he decided to make it an annual event and it was a way to highlight what this injustice of not being allowed into canada despite having the papers or you know that he needed or It didn't matter that he didn't have the papers, that he would need to go somewhere else, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he came back every year for four years. And, of course, when you think about the Peace Arch, one of the lines on the Peace Arch is children of a common mother. Mm. And I think that could be interpreted as a statement about, well, we're children of Europe or children of Britain.
1: Mm
0: that founded this place. But the man who built the Peace Arch, Sam Hill, he was a pacifist. He was a person who was interested in international cooperation, international peace, and that kind of thing. And I, I think Children of a Common Mother was sort of the message that Robeson was trying to get across, which is, yeah, we're all the same. We're all God's children. You know, all I'm asking is for America to live up to the values that it espouses and values it puts on paper. He was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee as a suspected communist during the witch hunt years. He refused to say if he was by invoking the Fifth Amendment. He also told the committee, quote, "'Gentlemen, you are the unpatriots, "'you are the un-Americans, and ought to be ashamed.'" Robeson eventually won the legal fight to have his passport restored, the Supreme Court having decided that the right to travel was an essential liberty but he continued to struggle against blacklisting and racial prejudice and his right as an American to enjoy equal rights. His stand at the Peace Arch was a major statement for those causes. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org.
1: Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. I read that he, you know, he was, you know, among the people talking about how so many Black Americans served in World War II and just how poorly they were treated both while they were soldiers and then when they returned and that kind of thing. You know, just like how not only horrific but hypocritical, you know, that is. And the Peace Arch was it built to represent peace? I mean, or, yeah, I mean, was there? <laughs> it was. I mean, yeah. We
0: we forget about it now, but when I was, you know, growing up in the. 1950s, 60s, 70s, you were taught in school that the Canadian-U.S. border was the largest undefended border in the world. Mm. We weren't enemies with Canada. They weren't enemies with us. There was no worries about immigration. It was a point of pride Mm. that America and Canada got along so well and had for so long. The Peace Arch was a kind of, you know, recognition of Times hadn't always been great between Britain and the United States, but they they had found a way to coexist and support each other in certain ways. And, you know, I know Sam Hill and others were devastated by the losses of World War One, the extent of death, the mm-hmm. numbers of people who died in the First World War. And so I think a thing like the Peace Arch just was very aspirational. It was reminding us of our better angels. It was reminding us of unity is better than division, better than borders. Mm-hmm. And you used to be able to go up the Blame Peace Arch and you could hop from one side of the border to the other, you know, without any risk of getting shot or arrested or, you know, have ice descend upon you or, you know, it has a lot of kind of potent symbolism. So I think it was a very, a very clever and appropriate place. You know, and the issue that you 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 mention here is the United States has been, long been criticized by its enemies as well as its friends for what it gets wrong. Mm -hmm. When Americans complained about the treatment of Jews in Germany Mm
1: -hmm.
0: before World War II, the Germans just said, hey, yeah, but what about Mississippi?
1: Right. You know,
0: they modeled their laws against Jewish people on laws that the United States had passed. Mm-hmm. So you have an international celebrity like and a charismatic person like Paul Robeson going out criticizing the United States for not living up to its own ideals mm-hmm. in a foreign country. In that atmosphere, it was perceived as close to treason. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you are getting aid and comfort to this new enemy, the Soviets, the communist Chinese. This is dangerous. You are undermining us. Because the U.S. doesn't want its dark side revealed, particularly by people who are popular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so I I think this was a problem. The other problem more domestically was in that post-war period, all over the country, but here in Washington certainly also, you know, it was another iteration of the Red Scare. Mm. You know, there had been a very strong anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-immigrant movement in the early 20th century around World War One, really spiked that up because you had the Russian Revolution and you had the Seattle General Strike and yeah. these things where people were afraid Bolshevism is right at our door. That then sort of calms down. Then, you know, the, the Russians become our allies fighting Hitler. But then in the 40s, when the Soviets become the enemy again, suddenly people are fighting communists under every every bed. Mm-hmm. So in 1947, in Washington state, you see this, this new joint legislative committee, the Canwell Committee, which was our House of Un-American Activities Committee locally. Mm-hmm. And it sought to root out and expose communists who had infiltrated all aspects of Washington life. And it was a very small committee of legislators. They held hearings not far from civic auditorium, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, and began grilling people and trying to expose communists in our midst. So there was, between 1947 and 1949, There was a committee that was getting professors fired from the University of Washington that was going back and demanding to know whether somebody had ever been a member of the Communist Party. And of course, then this became a national phenomenon in the early 50s during this period of these concerts when Joe McCarthy and the Un-American Activities folks and, and whatnot are doing the same thing at a national scale. And to some degree, they're actually kind of working together, local and national, feeding each other information, trying to dig dirt, trying to expose people. So in addition to trying to rein in a, a global celebrity who has his own credibility and, and charisma and appeal, you know, they're trying to root out communism locally uh, wherever they can find it so it's a, it's an atmosphere of fear mm-hmm. it's an atmosphere of pushback from the right mm-hmm. against you know the liberalism of the new deal the liberalism of the labor movement mm-hmm. the people who want um, integration mm-hmm. so it's a, it's happening all over
1: you know mention in the video he he was himself called before the House on American Activities Committee and was forced to, you know, defend himself and testify. And he he invoked the Fifth Amendment, but he he said, Gentlemen, you are the unpatriots. You are the un-Americans and ought to be ashamed. And the, um that just strikes me as resonating with this idea of like, how about you, American government, do what you have written down about, <laughs> you know, the Constitution Declaration of Independence all these things that we we've, we've sort of why can't we just like actually do what we say and be who we say we are
0: I think at some point every American of almost any ideology has wanted to stand up and say something like that to Congress right right, <laughs> right. You're, you're the ones you're the ones who have the problem you're the ones who are <laughs> violating our rights or whatever yeah and I, I it's not to say that Everybody's in the right. I'm just saying mm-hmm. I think that's something a lot of people can identify with, you know, and that I think the key also I think very successfully made the case being a black man who was a, an exception and then because he was an exceptional person being singled out by the very forces he that they were denying existed. hmm <laughs> You know, it's like, no, we're we're good Americans, you know, but we're going to take your passport away, shut you up and ruin your career. Right. Yeah. You know, we're going to sick the FBI on you. We're going to make sure you never record another record. We're going to make sure the Canadians won't let you in, even though you don't even need a passport. Right. And, you know, there was one one line, I think, was uh, when they turned Harry Bridges and Paul Robeson away from the border Harry Bridges' his lawyer said, this is this is Nazi stuff. Mm-hmm. This is what we just fought a war over. That moment where he's telling the committee off, has the courage to do it, even though he's paying a big price already. Mm-hmm. He's telling them that they're on the wrong side of, of America.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: you know, the American ideal, anyway.
1: Yeah, there's so much... You know, that he was saying that he fought for that we're still talking about, we're still fighting for. Well, that's
0: the other thing is when you see what he says, when you hear what he says about the ways in which America failed to live up to promises and what it needs to do, the same arguments are relevant now. Mm-hmm. Same arguments are heard now. The same push and pull against that version of America is still happening. Mm-hmm. That's one reason... I felt this episode might resonate with people now, is because there's so much of it that's so familiar, mm-hmm. both admirably and painfully. But I want to just say a few words, and to thank you again for your very great kindness in coming here today. It means much to us in America, much to the Americans struggling for peace in the Northwest. Some of the finest people in the world, under pressure today, facing jail, facing hostile courts, for the simple fact that they are struggling for peace, struggling for a decent America, where all of us who have helped build that
1: land can live in decency and in goodwill. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Bumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS-9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.